You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Before we begin, I wanted to briefly mention a great product I've been using. Studio, a superior audio technology company that has offered to sponsor this episode, makes some truly awesome headphones and earbuds. I recently received some on-ear headphones from them, and they're the best Bluetooth headphones I've ever owned. Great for listening to podcasts or music. Check out the products at studio.com or on their Instagram. And listeners of the show can get 15% off when you enter the discount code HISTORICALBLINDNESS. No spaces. I'll have a bit more to say about Studio a little later in the episode. Also, listeners may notice something different about the show, and that's, of course, the presence of advertising. While I'm sure some would prefer not to have ads in the content they enjoy, the simple fact is that accepting sponsorship and advertising will, hopefully, eventually allow me to focus more on the podcast and to make longer, more frequent episodes. Remember that supporting the show's sponsors is support for the show. And if you really don't want to hear ads, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash historicalblindness, where even at the lowest patronage level of a dollar per month, you can get access to an ad-free version of the show, as well as teasers between episodes, and at higher levels, early access to episodes and other perks. On that note, I'd like to thank my newest patrons, Alicia and Chris. Your support is greatly appreciated. On to the show. Welcome to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'll be your preacher today for a brief but convoluted sermon on the mysteries of the New Testament. This Blind Spot episode will indeed be a companion piece of sorts with the last episode on the Man in the Iron Mask. For again, we will be examining a historically unidentified person, someone whose identity has been much debated, with assorted likely suspects having been put forward by scholars. But additionally, it will serve as a clarification of sorts to a statement I made more than once in my series on Rennes-le-Chateau. 
In those episodes, I suggested that Mary Magdalene was considered a quote-unquote beloved disciple. In truth, there is a figure who only appears in the Gospel of John who is known by that moniker and is described in every appearance as quote, the disciple whom Jesus loved, end quote, but is never overtly identified by name. The notion that Mary Magdalene was the beloved disciple is a common and an intriguing one, but it is by no means widely accepted. For one thing, a key passage in the Gospel of John featuring the beloved disciple appears to indicate that they are two different people. Mary Magdalene sees the stone has been rolled away from Christ's tomb and goes to tell Simon Peter and the beloved disciple, who then race to the tomb and enter. But those in the Magdalene camp feel the text itself cannot be relied on, pointing out there appears to have been a campaign to besmirch the reputation of the Magdalene, portraying her as a prostitute when there is no evidence for this present in the Gospels. They suggest that her name may have been redacted, calling her instead the disciple whom Jesus loved so as not to admit Jesus' relationship with her. You may recall this theory in Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, which makes much of the fact that apocryphal texts, such as the Gospel of Mary, mention how much Jesus loved her. Now some believe this text actually refers to his mother Mary, but there are further mentions in the Gnostic texts of the Nag Hammadi for example, the Gospel of Philip, that indicate Christ's love for Mary Magdalene more specifically, and how he loved her more than the other disciples, and would, quote, kiss her often on her mouth, end quote. But contrary to what Brown claims in his novel, these texts are not the oldest known sources of information on the subject. Rather, they have been shown to be far less reliable as they are centuries older than the canonical Gospels, being composed hundreds of years later even than John, which at around 120 CE was written at the greatest historical distance from the events it describes. So let us consider further the evidence in the Gospel of John, as well as the most widely held theories on the beloved disciples' identity, in order to reach a fuller understanding. Thank you for joining me for this blind spot, The Beloved Disciple and the Authorship of John. There are actually a number of places in the Gospel of John in which an unnamed disciple appears. Although not explicitly identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved, many still take these as further appearances of the beloved disciple. The first is in chapter 1, verse 35, which mentions two disciples of John the Baptist who become the disciples of Jesus. If this is indeed the first mention of the beloved disciple, then it makes him or her one of the first to follow Jesus. Then much later in the book, Chapter 18, verse 15, after Jesus is arrested, the narrator relates that Simon Peter and quote-unquote another disciple followed. This other unnamed disciple knows the high priest and gains admittance to his court and afterwards is able to get Simon Peter in as well. Speculation that this also is the beloved disciple mainly because of this conspicuous anonymity has led to much theorizing regarding his or her identity and connection to the high priest. 
Those on Team Magdalene might suggest, rather than a poor prostitute, she was actually a woman of wealth, for as it indicates in Luke 8, she appeared to be funding Christ's ministry with her own money. Therefore, as a woman of means, perhaps highborn, the high priest may have recognized her. Others have taken this passage to suggest that the beloved disciple was himself a priest, but more on that later. The first time the Gospel of John refers to the beloved disciple overtly is in chapter 13, verse 23, when during the Last Supper, he or she is laying his or her head lovingly on Christ's chest. Clearly this sounds affectionate, almost approaching intimacy, so many have looked at it as further proof for Mary Magdalene's candidacy, while others have even suggested that there is some homoeroticism present in Christ's relationship with this disciple. Without endorsing either theory, for the sake of clarity and brevity, I will be using the male pronouns when referring to the unknown disciple from here on, as most scholarship and theories hold the character to be a man. In this scene, at the Last Supper, we again find Simon Peter present. Jesus has announced that one of his followers will betray him, and Simon Peter, seemingly in deference to the intimacy of the beloved disciple's position with Jesus, suggests with a beckoning motion that he ask Christ who this betrayer will be, whereupon Jesus identifies Judas Iscariot. After this encounter and Simon Peter's following Jesus to the court of the high priest, where a disciple who may be the same man manages to gain them entrance, we find the beloved disciple present at the crucifixion in chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus commends his mother into the beloved disciple's care. And finally, after the problematic detail of the Magdalene seeing the tomb had been opened and fetching the beloved disciple, indicating they were different people, we have the moment when this disciple whom Jesus loved, in the company of Simon Peter yet again, runs to the tomb. The beloved disciple outruns Peter, arriving first to see the discarded linens, but does not enter, leaving Simon Peter to investigate further. Now there is one final mention of the beloved disciple, and it is a doozy. In the final chapter of the book, as we have received it, a further encounter with Christ is described. Out on Peter's boat, fishing, the beloved disciple sees and recognizes Christ on shore. In this scene, on shore, Christ tasks Simon Peter with caring for his flock, essentially raising him up as the chief disciple. Peter asks about the beloved disciple, and Jesus asks what it would matter to him if he had the beloved disciple live until the second coming. This causes the disciples to suspect that Jesus has granted the beloved disciple immortality. But the narrator of the gospel dispels this notion, indicating that it had been more of a rhetorical question. Then, in the very next verse, he identifies himself, saying it is this beloved disciple who testifies to these things, essentially saying, that's me, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. So the question of the identity of the beloved disciple has long been tied up with questions of the authorship of the Gospel of John. I don't know about you, but I'm always listening to something, mostly podcasts. And when I'm not in my car, whether I'm walking to and from my car, doing work around the house, exercising or out on the town, I've got the old earbuds in. 
so I was excited when Sudio got in touch about their products. They're really a lifestyle brand with great Scandinavian design, so their headphones and earbuds are very stylish, more like an accessory than a tech device. Check them out on Instagram or at studio.com and you'll see what I mean. But don't get me wrong, I'm a sound design nerd too, and the Studio headphones I got provide studio quality sound. I picked up the Regent, and everything sounds and looks great. I've never really worn on-ear headphones out in public before, but these ones I'm proud to sport. Plus, they've got more than 24 hours of active battery life and go for almost a month on standby without needing a recharge. The Bluetooth functionality is great for when I'm out, but there's also an auxiliary cord so I can use it with my computer while I'm working on the show. It's really a fantastic product. And the price is right, too, especially when you compare it with other name-brand headphones. And you listeners of the show can get an extra 15% off your purchase with the discount code HISTORICALBLINDNESS. No spaces, one word. Pick up a pair or two. You'll love listening to the show on them, wherever you go. Every moment has a soundtrack with Studio. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Do you find yourself captivated by the inexplicable, entranced by enigmas, and tantalized by the unknown? We are Shane and Josh Waters, brothers who will weave you through tales that have mystified us for years. From haunted hotels to inexplicable disappearances. Our episodes offer you a panoramic view of the world's greatest mysteries, leaving no stone unturned, no clue unnoticed. With a gripping narrative, we invite you to join us on a journey into realms of the unexplained. We're unraveling the mysteries that have perplexed humanity for ages. So, armchair detectives, curious minds, and seekers of the strange, it's time to put on your headphones and dim the lights. Dive into the uncanny world of the Mystery Inc. podcast and prepare for a journey into the unknown that you'll never forget. And remember, some mysteries are better left unsolved, but not unexplored. Although the Gospels don't name their authors, they received their names through tradition, as their original audiences were familiar with their origin. Therefore, it has always been assumed that John's Gospel was written by someone named John. The traditional view is that the author of the Gospel of John is John the Apostle, 
sometimes referred to with his brother as a son of Zebedee. In truth, however, the name translated first into Greek and eventually into English as John was an extremely common Palestinian name, such that the authorship of this gospel is a matter of debate. And it has been pointed out that the sons of Zebedee were present in the boat on the Sea of Tiberias in chapter 21 and appear to be separate people from the unnamed beloved disciple, whose anonymity had been so carefully cultivated throughout the book. This would therefore rule out John the Apostle, and there is no shortage of Johns to choose from. There is John Mark, but he is usually credited with writing the Gospel of Mark. There is John the Baptist, but he is referred to explicitly by the narrator rather than coyly, as the beloved disciple always is. Other candidates include John of Patmos and the more obscure John the Presbyter, all of whom vie for credit not only for the composition of this gospel, but also the epistles of John and the book of Revelation, the so-called Johannine works. Then there is the notion, as previously stated, that this John was some unknown priest, for if he is the same unnamed disciple who entered the high priest's court, he appears to have had connections, and this background would jibe well with the literary quality of the gospel, which does not seem to have been composed by an uneducated common man. But there is another theory that casts a wrench into the workings of any theory identifying these men with the beloved disciple, this being that chapter 21 of the Gospel of John was a later addition to the book, and that its identification of the author with the beloved disciple is inaccurate. Many scholars point to the end of the previous chapter as evidence that this was the true original end of the book, for it concludes with a literary embellishment indicating that Jesus had performed many other works that the book had not mentioned, a flourish that is repeated again at the end of the next chapter, which it is argued was appended to clarify certain doctrinal points, such as that Peter was the true head of the church, or perhaps that the beloved disciple certainly wasn't a woman with whom Jesus was romantically involved. So the search for the beloved disciple continues. If his identity is not tied up with the John who wrote the book, then who was he? There have been manifold further theories. It has been pointed out that we have names for all 12 apostles, and even from the book of Acts for disciples who were recommended to replace Judas, Joseph Barsabbas and Matthias, because they had followed Jesus from the beginning. Indeed, Beyond the twelve, there were at least 72 other followers during Jesus' lifetime who might have been referred to as disciples, according to Luke 10.1. There was Nicodemus, who had asked Pilate for Christ's body, and Joseph of Arimathea, who had donated his own tomb for his burial. Either of these figures might easily be considered candidates. Then there is the intriguing idea, supported by James Tabor, that the beloved disciple was loved by Jesus as a brother. Some traditions, supported by scriptural passages, suggest that Mary had multiple sons after Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. These would, in effect, be Jesus' half-brothers, and of them, 
James is the most well-known. Again, we have some confusion among characters with similar names, as James the brother of Christ is often identified with another character, James the Less, as in the younger brother, and confused with two apostles named James, one a son of Zebedee, like John, the other a son of Alphaeus. Tabor's theory looks at the crucifixion scene when Jesus tells his mother to look at the beloved disciple and says, quote, Behold your son, end quote, telling the beloved disciple likewise, quote, Behold your mother, end quote. And he sees a literal statement that the beloved disciple is another son of Mary. Another candidate with a strong case is a follower of Christ not traditionally considered a disciple, Lazarus. Scholars in the 20th century have developed his candidacy quite convincingly. Floyd Filson, in a 1949 paper for the Journal of Biblical Literature, outlines his theory with powerful clarity. Earlier in the Gospel of John, the narrator makes it abundantly clear that Jesus loved Lazarus, including no less than three indications of his love for him. This adds weight and pathos to Jesus' grief and the subsequent miracle he performs. Then, when the beloved disciple sees the discarded linens at the tomb, he is the first to believe Christ is resurrected, which is a far less dramatic assumption coming from one who has himself been resurrected. And finally, this theory does not shrink from the last chapter that identifies the author as the beloved disciple, suggesting that the events of the gospel all take place near Bethany, where Lazarus lived, making him a natural candidate for authorship as well. And the principal scene in the final chapter, in which the other disciples believe that Jesus is suggesting the beloved disciple might live forever, is further illuminated by the idea that the beloved disciple had already been raised from the dead. Among all these competing theories is yet another, that the beloved disciple is not a real person whose identity can be uncovered, but rather a literary trope, a figure in more than one sense. Perhaps some scholars have suggested the beloved disciple is not named because he is not a man as much as he is an idea. By this reading, he is almost always presented as a contrast to Simon Peter, a character famous for his ambivalence and failings. At the Last Supper, the beloved disciple asks Christ directly what Simon Peter is too timid to ask. While they both follow Christ after his arrest, the beloved disciple resourcefully enters the high priest's court while Simon Peter waits at the gate and later denies his devotion to Christ. While Peter is too afraid to witness Christ's death, the beloved disciple bravely attends the crucifixion. In the race to the tomb, the beloved disciple arrives first and is first to believe in the resurrection. And at the Sea of Tiberias, the beloved disciple is the first to recognize the risen Christ. If one were to read this character as symbolic, then he might represent a model for devotion and faith, juxtaposed by Simon Peter's weaknesses. But several of the ideas we have discussed, that the Gospels have been redacted, that a new ending may have been tacked onto John to rewrite the origins of the book, and that major passages may be rather more symbolic than literal, lead to some big questions. 
If this gospel might be doctored, and if we are meant to read it as allegorical, with fictional characters representing ideals and abstractions, what does this mean for scriptural literalists? What does this say about the literal interpretation of other books in the Bible? Perhaps the lesson here is that we should not be analyzing them as primary historical sources, searching for verifiable facts in them. Perhaps, as has been suggested of other portions of Scripture, it is more useful to think of them as mythology and folklore. Thank you for listening to Historical Blindness, the Odd Past podcast. I'm the host, Nathaniel Lloyd. Music for the show is provided by film composer Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com to get compositions for your own projects. And by Creepy Pizza. And by Sean Duncan from his former project, Sean Ariel, whose music can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. Also, check out Sean's great new podcast, the California True Crime Podcast. As always, a massive thanks goes out to my partner patrons on Patreon, Michael, Marina, Lori, and Diane. Not to suggest that you are like my disciples, but you are loyal supporters, and I love all of you. Find me on Patreon to support the show and get some perks, such as access to ad-free episodes. Also, visit the website to browse the show's merch on Redbubble. Check out the episode reading list and click through to Amazon to buy my novel about the intersection of anti-masonry and the beginning of Mormonism in early 19th century New York. If you buy and read the novel, give me a review on Amazon. And if you're able to, rate and review the show on whatever app you use, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, as that can really help the discovery of the show. Until next time, remember... Before you go taking a text too literally, read between the lines. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.